This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Laracasts. Laracasts is the de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels. Whether you're new to Laravel or you're hoping to level up your dev team, Laracast was constructed entirely and exclusively for you. It's a lot like Netflix for your career. I think there's over 500 videos on there right now covering all sorts of topics from Laravel itself to different backend tools, front end frameworks like Vue.js and React, design patterns, how to get better at Git. There's something on there for everybody. So check it out if you have a chance at laracasts.com and thanks again to laracast for sponsoring full stack radio enjoy the show hey everyone welcome to another episode of the full stack radio podcast where i talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration i'm your host adam wathen as always and today i'm here with ben ornstein of thoughtbot how's it going ben it's going super well awesome do you mind just giving a quick introduction and explaining who you are and what you do uh, yeah, sure. So the day job for me right now is working on something called Upcase, which is an, basically an online school for intermediate to advanced Rails developers that want to improve their skills. So it takes the best practices and things we learn at ThoughtBot by building uh, like hundreds of Rails apps and distills them down into videos and flashcards and exercises uh, to teach you those things that we've learned. Awesome. Uh, kind of a question about that, actually, that I thought might be interesting to talk about. You used to do consulting and stuff, I thought, by, right before you moved into working on the product? Yes. What would you say some of the more interesting differences and challenges have been since moving from consulting work to focusing on a product where you're more in control of business decisions and stuff like that? Uh, it's a good question. I actually like both. I think both have advantages. So when for me personally, I like change a lot. I like new projects and new challenges and new things to focus on. To focus on. So consulting is nice like that because you're typically switching every so often. And so it's kind of built right into the work. Um, products are nice because while you don't get, I can't quite shift so dramatically, but I can shift focus. So our team is, is small. Uh, there's only two of us on it full time. So I can, I'm, I'm writing code sometimes. I'm writing copy for landing pages or uh, emails for a drip sequence uh, or looking at uh, pay-per-click results and analyzing things or you know sending new events to analytics service. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different things you can focus on. So I still kind of get that ability to flip around, um, but I also can um, see the long-term effects of things. To me, that's one of the downsides of consulting is sometimes you come in and you make some recommendations and you make some changes, but in the back of your head, you know, like, this isn't going to stick. Like I, I know I need to be here for way longer to help keep training people and, and try to change the culture and, and make clear what things are important. Uh, and I know that what I did is, is going to be kind of helpful, but not really. Are there any interesting things that you've learned by making that switch that maybe you didn't expect to learn, like things that you've gotten into a lot that maybe you didn't even realize were going to be a component of the work that you do? Like you mentioned like the pay-per-click analytics and all this stuff. Like maybe yeah. that's not something that I would have even thought about when I was th- realizing I was switching into a product from doing consulting work. Yeah, doing uh, focusing on the marketing side of things has been um, surprisingly important. Like at the end of the day, it's about how many customers come in the door and sign up and stick around. Uh, so typically on the consulting engagements that I was on, I wasn't ever thinking about that step of the funnel. It was kind of like, all right, we have users that are signed up and they need this new feature. Uh, and it wasn't about retention and it wasn't about acquisition. Uh, so that was, it's a bit surprising how, I was, it's somewhat surprising how important that was because I, I was just so steeped in programming as the most important thing. But it turns out there are a lot of weeks where programming is not the most important thing I can do. Yeah, for sure. Um, switching gears a little bit, there was um, a video that I watched that was like a really old ThoughtBot video before you guys even really had put together like the subscription service and all this stuff that you did that was like getting the ball rolling with TDD. It was called something like that. Yep. Um, 
I thought that was a really it's something I actually go back to pretty often because hmm. there's just little things in there that I have been really helpful in figuring out how to approach certain things, especially because I think like one of the most common questions people have when they're getting into testing is that what that video was designed to address, right? Which is like, what is the very first test I write? How right. do I get something in place so it starts feeling more natural to start TDDing out these other smaller pieces when mm -hmm. all you have in your head is like, well, we need to start this new project. You know, people are going to need to be able to sign in, I guess. So there's probably going to be a homepage or, you know what I mean? Before you have like some stuff there where you can test that things work. The thing that I thought was most interesting that kind of was like a light bulb for me is when doing this outside in TDD stuff, I've always struggled with how much code do I let myself write based on that first test? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'd be interested to get your uh, thoughts on that idea. How much code do you write in response to a test? Um, so uh, you had Kemp Beck on uh, before. I wonder if he talked about this a little bit. But uh, I try to write as little as possible, uh, and sometimes to a kind of crazy degree. So if I'm writing, for example, a unit test for a new method, uh, and I will, in the unit test, call that new method and assert that the result should be something. And the first time I run that test, the error is usually uh, no method error. There's no method called whatever that new method you just made up is. Uh, and so my first step will be to actually just write the empty method. So I'll write the method with that name, but nothing inside it, and then rerun the test. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking mostly from like the acceptance level, because I okay. feel like you can write like um, a higher level integration test or acceptance test. And if you're if you're thinking in terms of like the classical TDD cycle where it's like, you know, write the least amount of code you need to write to get that test to pass. Well, there's actually a lot of code that you need to write to get an acceptance test to pass, especially when that's the very first thing that you're starting your application with. Yeah, so I would actually tweak that um, recommendation uh, away from uh, least amount to get the test to pass uh, to the least amount to get the test to pass or to change the error. So uh, if I wrote a uh, acceptance test, uh, often the first problem will be, oh, hey, there's no route called that, for yeah. example. Like I said, visit, you know, sign-in path. Okay, there's no sign-in path yet. I'll just define the route and then rerun the test because I know that's going to change the error. And then it'll say, okay, now there is the route, but there's no controller named uh, sign-in controller. And so I'll make the empty controller and rerun the test. Okay, now there's no action called whatever. Okay, I'll make that empty action. And I'll just proceed like that. And my goal is just to do the minimal amount that will give me a new error that will point me in the right direction. I think the interesting piece about that too, that is subtle that I picked up like watching the video is when you're talking about like, okay, you create the route to get the different error and it's going to say that the controller doesn't exist. That means that you wrote code in the routes file suggesting that there should be this controller. Like you're expecting there to be that controller. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. And that was something that I, I thought was really useful for me, especially when you got into like the inside the controller action. And now it's like, okay, so now it's not returning what it needs to return. How would I get that? Write the code to get the data that I need expecting that these classes that I'm writing are going to exist. And then you used that as like the trigger to finally TDD out those units. And that was mm -hmm. like a really important missing piece for me that I don't think people highlight enough sometimes. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah, I, I think TDD is kind of an optimistic workflow. You just keep thinking like, it sure would be nice if there were a controller with this name. Or then, and then it sure would be nice if there were a method of the model I could just call like this and it would just give me exactly what I wanted. Yeah, uh, definitely. Do you find... Um, how do you find yourself doing that when you're closer to the unit level? I was watching his presentation by a guy named Ian Cooper in the .NET world, 
And he talks about how you should never introduce new tests while you're refactoring, which sometimes means like extracting a small class from something, you know what I mean? But the tests for the behavior that that class was responsible for are still passing. Um, and you're kind of using those as the tests for this smaller object that you've extracted. Would you TDD out like any smaller things that you extract? Does that make sense? Uh, um, yeah, I'm not sure I agree with his, his, um, his view there. I'm not sure. So if I so I, we have a big class and we want to extract something from it. Yeah. And so the question is like, what's the first step? Do you write tests or not? Yeah. Um. So one. So I think I've I think I've done it a couple different ways. Uh, one way I will sometimes approach that is to extract the class and basically make it a private class of the the class from which I'm extracting. And so then the the tests uh, for the original class uh, effectively act as integration tests for those two classes working together now. Um, and then presuming that class, then I'll sort of step back and say, okay, now I have this new class. Does anyone else maybe want this? Would this be useful if it were accessible to the rest of the system? Uh, and if so, uh, I will promote it to a, you know, a full-fledged public class. Uh, and at that point, I will um, create tests for it. So explicitly. you're testing after the fact in that case? Uh, not Actually, no. So I'll do, again, the kind of like goofy TDD uh, thing where... Okay, so I have like this uh, new class, and so I'll actually start writing tests for it, and then I will copy that new class out bit by bit. So let's say I've extracted, so, so the new class I've extracted has, let's say, two public methods on it. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I'm going to do is write a new test uh, in a new file for this new class as if it were already a public class, and write a test for that first method. And then I will copy out just the bits um, to make that test pass. But when you have extracted it as a private class, originally uh -huh. you're letting the the existing tests act as coverage for that. Uh, and then you're promoting that class after the fact yep. to a public class. You kind of have to write the tests after the fact then, right? Or do you have an approach for that as well? Kind of have to write the tests after the fact. Like you have some big class, right? You have some yep. tests for the behavior that that big class has. You yep. extract some small object out of it. You let the tests for that big class act as coverage for this new private class. Because yep. that's essentially an implementation detail of whatever you had tested before, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And now that small thing might need to be used by some other places. So now you want test coverage for the things that it's responsible for independently. Mm -hmm. If the class already exists now mm -hmm. and you were letting the tests for the bigger class act as coverage for it mm -hmm. you kind of have to write the tests after the fact now if you're promoting it to public or would you like delete it and tdd it again or something so so i would do sort of something in between which is i would so so right now there there is no public so like, let's say the new class is like user authenticator there is no public user authenticator right it's private inside that other class so i would write a new test called you know user authenticator spec and say if I call user authenticator new and pass it a user and call authenticate, then I should come back with you know some sort of token or something. Sure. Um, and then that test will fail because there is no such class with that name that it can access, and there's and also moreover there's no method with that. Okay. And then so I would make in a new file a empty class called user authenticator, and so you're run the still test TDDing again. it even when you're extracting it as a private class. Exactly. Gotcha. Yep. So I wouldn't just copy that whole class wholesale out into the new file and then backfill tests because that's just it's hard to know that I've actually got test coverage. And so instead, I would basically start from scratch and say, okay, now there's going to be a new object that does this thing. Like, what, what should its behavior be? And then bit by bit, I will copy out the relevant methods and data from that previously private class into a new file. Uh, and that way, I know I have test coverage on everything. And also, it causes me to reexamine how I want it to work now that it's a public thing. Totally. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I find that one of the difficulties I have when I'm trying to 
TDD out even things that I'm kind of considering to be implementation details like private classes and stuff like that mm-hmm. is sometimes I feel like it limits my ability to refactor if I decide that that wasn't the extraction that I wanted to make after the fact like now you're going to have failing tests when you change how that class works even though the tests that were covering like the larger slice of behavior still pass you know what I mean so if so in this instance where we extracted out the new private class, you're saying changing that causes the parent class's tests to fail? Parent class's the... tests still pass, but okay. the, the tests for the private class are no longer relevant if you change how you implement the behavior in the parent class. So are you writing tests for private classes and methods then in this well, instance? Well, that's what we're kind of talking about, right? Like yeah. if you're extracting this private class and you're TDDing the private class as you extract it, then those tests kind of aren't useful anymore if you change how the implementation works in the bigger piece without causing the tests to fail on the bigger piece you know what i'm saying uh i didn't quite follow that last bit (laughs) this would be easier if we could diagram yeah (laughs) but so imagine you have like um some bigger class right you're extracting the private you have tests for the bigger class right you're extracting the private class from the bigger class to okay and keeping it private Keeping it private, but like, what does that really mean in a language like Ruby? Like, can you have private? No, no, classes? private's private. If you go in and, and touch private stuff, that's your problem. But like, what makes a class private? Uh, if you throw a class under the private keyword inside a, another class, you can't get at that without. Gotcha. I didn't know you could do that. I'm not a Ruby programmer, by the oh, way. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So sorry. it's interesting to, to find out about some of these like little uh, nuances that I don't have available uh, yep. in the environment that I work in. Okay. Gotcha. So. So if the class that you're extracting, I hope is, I'm right about that. By the way, I'm I'm pretty sure, but uh, I feel like probably like there's not a lot of things that Ruby won't let you do. <laughs> you can certainly get at it. Like Ruby will, yeah, always let you, you know, break the rules of whatnot. I'm pretty sure by default you can't just go and get the access to that private constant inside. Yeah. The parent so would you define that in the same file or something then? Yeah. Yep. I'd be you know class foo, and then there's a private keyword, and beneath that, I would say class bar. Okay. So I think that is probably the missing piece that makes it. Uh, Gotcha. More clear. As soon as it gets moved out to another file, it needs to be TDD'd, TDD'd into that file, basically. Yep. And, and often you can just copy the tests from the parent class uh, into the new file. Like Often there's tests that are just concerned with the behavior of the, the, new, the newly extracted class, mm-hmm. but sometimes I'm writing tests from scratch. But, but the key is to stay in that workflow of, like, you know, I want to write the behavior I hope to see eventually. Yeah. Do you have any tips and tricks for designing or kind of like there's kind of a difference between trying to test some behavior in your system versus just like testing the public methods on a class. Mm, yeah. You know what I mean? And mm. I've been finding lately that uh, whenever possible, I try and like name a test uh, in such a way that it's not just directly testing some specific method on some specific class. So uh, for example, I was, uh, I gave a presentation a little while ago where I was showing a test for uh, how applying a coupon to an order would affect the total cost of an order. Mm-hmm. And I could have tested like um, the total method on the order when it has a coupon applied. But what ended up happening is in this refactoring I was doing, I ended up moving the logic for calculating the discount into the coupon class instead of from the order class. Mm-hmm. And if I had tested like the discount method on the coupon separately from the total method on the order, I wouldn't have been able to kind of do that refactoring without changing the tests. But because mm-hmm. the test is kind of designed to talk about the idea of how adding a coupon to an order affects the cost of an order, the test can stay the same and you can still play with these different ideas of where things should go and stuff like that. Do you have any um, strategies that you use for naming tests or figuring out what a test should really do when we're kind of talking about that distinction between trying to test like some idea versus testing the methods on a class? Yeah. For, um, it's, uh, for me, 
I think of it as a breakdown between uh, acceptance or feature tests and um, unit tests. So with, with the way I write tests, unit tests are testing methods. And so they reference methods by name, and they say, you know, the, the total cost method should return this thing in this context. Um, and my feature specs uh, don't think of the, they talk about the system from the perspective of the user. So, you know, when a user adds a coupon to an order, they see that the order total is uh, decreased the correct amount. And the feature tests are looking at the UI. They're seeing, like, you know, over in this, uh, this part of the, the UI where the total price shows up, I should see the new price. Uh, and are not concerned with methods generally. Yeah, cool. Uh, another kind of interesting topic that I think is mostly interesting because of the distinction between the Ruby community and a lot of other communities. You actually wrote a blog post on this a few years ago, but you didn't really go into your opinions so much. Mm. Um, but it was about it was a response to DHH's blog post about dependency injection a long mm. time ago. Yeah, and uh, you know you were kind of not really impressed with like his approach to the argument. And that was kind of what your blog post was about. But I'd be interested in your opinion on why dependency injection is thought of as like a dirty word or something in the Ruby community compared to some other programming communities. Um, I'm not sure I would say that it is thought of as a dirty word. Um, I think there, I would say maybe five or six years ago, uh, a lot of the people coming into Ruby were coming from Java. And so I think there was this sense of <laughs> euphoria of like, look how uh, few of the things that we used to have to do in Java, we have to do in Ruby. And so it was one of those baby bathwater situations where it was like, we have, you know, we've escaped this world, so now uh, let's uh, just sort of ignore everything that we used to do over there. And it became a little bit of a, I guess, badge of shame or something. If it was like, oh, but like, what if this thing that we did over in Java land was, was still a good idea and we brought it over here? It's like, no, no, we're, we're done with Java land. Get out of here. <laughs> and that's just, this is all speculation, but that, this is my guess as, as to where this, this attitude came from. And so it was kind of like, you know, patterns are, patterns are dead. Uh, non-dynamic types are dead. All these things. Like, we're not going to do all these things. They all suck because they were all in Java. And it turns out that there are uh, plenty of good ideas uh, that are practiced across multiple programming languages. And dependency injection, I think, is one of them. So... I think that's kind of where that attitude came. What was the original question? Yeah, yeah. I was just kind of wondering what your opinion was on dependency injection too. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. So I, I, I'm, I try to stay away from uh, preaching anything that you should do all the time. Sure. Uh, programming is very much all about uh, using your judgment on case-by-case basis and trying to build good habits, but always making sure you're paying attention. Uh, but I generally will inject the dependencies for my classes uh, because I find it... Uh, I like the way it explicitly states, like, this user authenticator needs a user and it needs an authentication service or, you know, whatever. And I like to be able to see that in the constructor. And also, I find it makes it, I, I do TDD, and I find it makes it much easier to practice TDD uh, when I can inject things like that. Yeah, I think, like, people kind of, it's a little easier in, to get away with it in Ruby, right? Because you can just swap out a class constant at runtime. So if you're just <laughs> referencing it directly, like, say in your constructor, you're basically doing the same thing, but you're just assigning an instance variable to a new whatever um, right there instead of yep. passing it in. You can still test that with a mock or stub easily in Ruby anyways, right? True, yeah. Ruby Ruby's so malleable, you could just say, okay, instead when I, when I call user.new, instead of doing actually that, you know, give, give this fake user instead. Mm-hmm. But, so, but give, given that Ruby already has a way that I can pass parameters to an object that needs it, uh, I'm happy to use that sort of simple machinery rather than going through and uh, effectively monkey patching the classes in my system to say, okay, in this context, uh, you're going to do a whole new different thing. Like I like, to, I like to keep my system working as close to the way it's going to work in production as possible. So if it's like, okay, in production, it's going to have a user 
it's going to accept a user and an authenticator service. So in the test, it should probably also accept a user and authenticator service, even if they are very simplified versions of what those will be in production. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, like, I'm a PHP programmer by day, which I think mm-hmm. to people outside of the PHP community sounds really embarrassing. But it's, things have gotten better there. We have real object-oriented tooling and frameworks and stuff now so it's not too bad (laughs) but like everything is dependency injected all the time and it's preached like from the mountaintops and it's so like embedded in my brain that it's interesting to me to talk to people in the ruby community about it because i feel like i'm i want to make sure i'm not brainwashed you know you know yeah yep so yeah it's pretty interesting i know in one of like the weekly iteration videos that you did with uh joe you guys were experimenting with creating like a dependency injection container in ruby yeah uh what was kind of the outcome there um it's hard to say so i'm not sure if everyone knows but when you do dependency injection you're passing in all these dependencies from outside the classes and you can kind of keep pushing this this sort of turns your system inside out uh so that you keep pushing these dependencies further and further up the chain or up the call stack and uh in rails the place you have to stop basically is the controller uh that's the that's the sort of the last that's the entry point to your app uh, and so Joe wrote uh, an experimental dependency uh, container, I guess an injection framework or something. I'm not sure exactly the right term for it, but a place you can push them one level out, outside the controllers. So we have like a container, uh, container? Or de- oh, dependencies.rb file in this Rails app. That's the only place where we talk about constants, basically. Like that's the only place you can, you'll see a class name, more or less. Uh, and it d- talks about what all the dependencies of the app are and how you build all the dependencies of the app. Uh, and those get injected uh, via a rack app, actually, or in the yeah a rack middleware. I'm not sure if this makes sense to your audience, but anyway, in, yeah, in, totally. in ri- okay, cool. In Rails world, uh, it just it sort of shows up in the controller for you already preassembled, and so it's like, oh, you know, you know, you're going to need a this user authenticator service. Therefore, you don't need to know what, what the class what the class is or what it takes. You just you just got one. You can just call out to it. It's in the container. Don't worry about it. Um, and it's really uh, interesting. Uh, the app is really interesting to work on. The classes are pretty beautiful. They all, I've noticed they seem to all be really small. Uh, I feel like it's easier to um, keep these classes really single purpose and think about them really single purpose when all the dependencies are in one place. Uh, it's it's, it's kind of nice to work on. I, I'm not, it's, it's been sort of a, I, call, I, think it's, I think of it kind of as a successful failure in that uh, it had some really nice architectural properties on the app. Um, it's, it's pleasant to work on. But every time someone comes into the project, everyone's kind of like, what's going on here? Uh, so there's some overhead with people uh, getting up to speed on it. And it kind of hasn't took, it, kinda, it hasn't taken, like it, it hasn't spread. So it's, it's hard to, it'd be hard to call it like an actual success in that it changes the way we're doing it by default. Yeah, I think like it makes a lot of sense to me because you're separating like configuration and bootstrapping essentially from like the actual application logic. Yep. You know? Totally. Um, I think Joe would be uh, actually Joe would be a great guest, by the way, and he could talk about this uh, more succinctly. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. I'll have to ask him sometime for sure. Mm-hmm. So when you're if, in a more traditional Rails app, like if you're if you have something that maybe depends on two other classes, when you instantiate that thing, it instantiates those two other classes itself inside of itself, which may instantiate other things inside of themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Is that kind of the more standard approach? Uh, yeah. If you're if you're not practicing dependency injection, then yeah. yes. I think um, in the the DHH article, he kind of gives an unfair example where he's he's mostly talking about like injecting parameters into methods for things like the current date time. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, do you have any opinions on like that versus like injecting collaborators into a class, like referencing the, a global reference to the current date and time versus passing it in? Um, 
again, I found that I can generally test the, uh, my objects more easily when they don't look outside themselves. So if, if they need things, if I can pass them in in the constructor, it's so much easier for me to um, pass in simplified versions of those or things that are always going to give the same answer. Uh, whatever I need to do, I feel, I feel like I have more control over the class. It makes it a little bit more modular uh, and, and easier to test. So I, I, I generally reach for that as my first technique. Since you work on Upcase, where you're kind of you know helping to educate the greater programming community and help uh, new Rails developers and stuff like that, I'm kind of interested in your opinion on like what are common mistakes that you see uh, Rails developers making that you know might lead to making their apps harder to maintain. Hmm, that's interesting. I think the most common thing I see is that people aren't as aggressive as I wish they were when it comes to writing short methods and short classes. And I think Rails kind of encourages you in this direction uh, where it's always going to be easiest to add another method to an existing model uh, for whatever your app is about. So uh, this is a saying I stole from Joe, but I love, which is pretty much every Rails app will have two God objects, meaning objects that seem to show up everywhere and have a ton of behavior and data associated with them. One will be user, and the other will be whatever the app is about. So if it's a to-do application, it'll be to-do. If it's an, uh, some sort of e-commerce thing, it'll be order.rb. And so it will always be easiest to add another method onto order. It's like, oh, now we need to calculate discounts. Okay, we'll throw it on order. Okay, well, now we also need to talk about you know, delayed shipping or you know, a million other things. And it, it will always kind of just be most straightforward to add it directly to that active record object um, or on user. And I wish people would be a little bit... So, so I try to always think twice before adding anything to those objects. And I try to add behavior to them uh, by not actually adding it to them directly. Uh, so I'll, I'll like sometimes I'll decorate uh, the order or the user, um, or I'll, I'll have it compose another class that uh, provides that behavior. Uh, but I find like most people will look at a class that's a thousand lines long and be like, "Oh yeah, that's I mean it's that's kind of a little too long, but whatever. I'm gonna add another method here because it's easy." Uh, and I will look at a class that's a hundred lines long and be like, "Whoa, we have got to slim this thing down." And method length as well. Like I, I try to write, and this is not to say that I don't have any big big classes or big methods. This, it sometimes happens, but I tend to extract methods until I have almost all single line methods. And a lot of people are, are very willing to write, you know, fifty line methods, whereas I, I'm not. Can you think of any common opportunities for extracting methods that might be worth talking about? Yeah, uh, one that I think basically always improves the readability of code is extracting compound conditionals. So if you have um, if uh, user.password is blank and and uh, user dot uh, not authenticated using OAuth, then do handle this thing. Whenever I see an and and or an or or in an if, uh, it almost always reads better to extract that thing into a new method uh, that has a name that describes what does it mean when this is true and this is true. Totally. I, I really love that refactoring. I do it basically all the time. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, can you think of any others? Um, Extracting temp to query is a great one. Uh, so uh, this is a named refactoring from the, uh, the famous refactoring book, which uh, would, people would do well to be familiar with. So basically when you have you know, foo equals some complicated process to create a foo, uh, instead create a method called foo that holds the process for creating foo. Yeah, I found like uh, that's actually been an interesting way to find creative solutions to problems a lot of time is to treat temporary variables as like a code smell almost all the time. Mm -hmm. yep. Unless they exist solely to like memoize some uh, expensive 
computation or something. And even then, you can memoize the methods instead. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, and then, go ahead. I was going to say, you still have to have a variable then where it's being memoized, but it ends up being like an instance variable or something, I guess. Right, so it's, it's, a it's bit hidden different. from the callers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the nice thing about extracting more things to, to methods is that you tend to then reuse them as opposed to duplicate them. So if I have, you know, if, if this process for creating a user or whatnot um, tends to, once you do it once in a class, it's actually pretty common for you to want to do it multiple times in different methods. And sometimes it's easy to just like copy that line between the methods and then duplicate how you do that. Uh, whereas pulling it into a method uh, gives you a chance to reuse it. And it also, I find, tends to make things more uh, explicit. So I'm always uh, preaching the value of explicit code, uh, explicit concepts over implicit concepts. Mm-hmm. So if I have you know, user equals and then a long, complicated process for building a user when they uh, don't have a password, that's sort of implicit. Like I have to look at that and read it and figure out, okay, this is how you build a user when they don't have a password. But if instead I extract that thing uh, into a method called build user with no password. It's like, okay, now you don't have to read all those details and all that junk and figure out what I meant. You can just read this English name of, of what this thing does. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of something I read in... Um, have you read Corey Haynes's Four Rules of Simple Design book? I have not, although I'd like to. I love it's Corey. It's really good, and it's very short. So, mm-hmm. And it's full of just kind of almost like standalone nuggets of insight. So it's kind of enjoyable to read. Sounds like my jam. Yeah. Uh, one thing that he talks about there that I think has been a really useful trick is the use of named constructors. Okay. So instead of just calling like user.new and passing different parameters, uh, depending on kind of the state of the user that you want to create, he has this like rule that he tries to follow where he never calls new on a class outside of that class itself. He mm. always comes up with some word to represent like what is it that he's actually getting back, like, mm. like user.unregistered or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the example he gives in the book, the whole book is based around um, – Conway's Game of Life and okay. like the stuff that they did in all the code retreats. Yeah. So uh, where you might be getting like where you might instantiate a new world, right, that has no cells in it yet. Uh, instead of calling world.new and just like having this implicit assumption that that means the world is empty, he would call world.empty to get an empty world. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah it's kind of a cool kind of a cool kind of heuristic or approach to keep in the back of your head. If you can if you can give a constructor a name, it can be really useful sometimes. So Right. Yeah. Well, I mean. Yeah, I'd never thought of that. I was, but that's that's a great that's a great point. Why yeah, not make well, it explicit exactly the thing you're building? Yeah, if yeah. if the thing you're building has different states. Totally. Yeah. Right? But even then, like sometimes maybe um, something only ever needs to be constructed one way. Even if you can give that a name, that's still better than not having a name I'm, for it. Yeah, I'm having trouble picturing that. I'm uh, thinking like like the world that empty one is not a bad example. You could imagine a version oh, that you oh, never oh. constructed a world with cells. Right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. That's true. Yeah, okay. All right. It's kind of neat. I don't know. Kind of just to wrap up, what is one thing that you wish you had learned sooner as a programmer that you think would have something that like had a big impact on the way you write code that you wish you could have learned much sooner than you did? I'm gonna I'm, let me let me do a couple. Sure. Yeah. Like uh, one is nothing is better than working with really good people. I think the best way to get better at programming is to pair with someone that is better at it than you are. Totally agree. So. To me, that's the gold standard. If everything else is worse than that, so the closer you can get to that, the better. So, like next best might be having your code reviewed by someone better, like sitting right next to you, kind of thing, or watching videos of someone better, like working, like also pretty, pretty good. Yeah, I think that's actually really helpful. There's been so many times where I've watched a video on a topic that I may not even necessarily be that interested in, just to watch mm-hmm. someone's workflow and pick up yes. all sorts of useful tips and tricks. Totally. I've been preaching that for a long time, but I, I think watching th- those little things are so huge. Like people just, you always pick up so much more. It's very high bandwidth 
to watch someone actually work as opposed to talk about how they work. Mm-hmm. Did you ever watch any of those like, oh, yeah, you had a peep code play by play video. <laughs> I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those were actually awesome for that sort of thing. Totally. People should yeah. definitely check those out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's a big one. So if whenever possible, do that if you can. The other is um, I'm a big fan of getting in the habit of really aggressively admitting when you don't understand something. Uh, we're sort of an, we're an intellect powered industry. And so there's this pressure to act like you're smart. Uh, and uh, a worry of being perceived as not with it or not understanding something or not knowledgeable on something. And that can be so detrimental to your, to your learning. So I, I often will tell people to try to get really aggressive about admitting when you haven't, you don't, you're not familiar with something or you don't understand something. And uh, that's, that's really huge. Uh, that's a big one. Yeah, totally. I can't agree more with that. Like I'm guilty of that myself. I think everyone's been guilty of it where you just kind of say, oh yeah, yeah, just kind of nod your head, right? When right. really you don't actually understand what's going on and you're not doing anyone any favors by pretending totally. to know something. Especially yourself is the thing. Like you've missed an opportunity to actually get it clarified and to learn it forever and then just have it as a, instead of, you know, missing it entirely. Yeah. Anything else? God, I had one uh, in my head. What was it? Oh yeah. Uh, one last one. I get a lot of people that will ask things like, how best do I model this scenario in a Rails app? Or like, what's the best way to get faster in Vim? Or these sort of like um, amorphous questions. And it's surprising to me how often my answer is, you need to just do it a bunch of times. Uh, like the, the, the volume of work might be more important than the, the quality of your work for a long time uh, when, you're, when you're learning something new. So like I could give you some recommendations for how I mo- would model this situation you're describing where you know users have many whatevers and these have one whatever. Um, but not, it wouldn't help you as much as if you instead just went and built 10 Rails apps and had to model a bunch of different things and then found out where that modeling fell over. Like you have to start to v- develop an intuition and a, and a, a wisdom uh, for you know like you know, what what kind of things set off your alarm bells and what kind of things like can you immediately dismiss as a bad idea just because you've gone down that road before and it went poorly. Uh, and that's that wisdom you just can't really get by asking someone more experience, like, hey, what would you do here? Uh, you have to just do it yourself. Yeah, I think there's a tendency um, in a lot of industries and a lot of hobbies and anything to always be kind of, kind of looking for a shortcut. Sure. Um, when really uh, it all comes down to just doing something a lot and like deliberate practice and lots of experience. Like I found so many times my code has gotten better just by writing a lot of code mm-hmm. and not even realize and not even like being able to pinpoint like, well, what did I actually learn between now and then? Like what new things do I know now that I didn't know then? And I can't think of anything, but the code is just better. Totally. Totally. There's a great saying that I love um, from the game of Go, uh, which is an amazing game and people should pick it up. Uh, But the saying is, lose your first hundred games as quickly as possible. It's, and it, it's, it's so true, and then that just applies to so many things. It's like it, beginners in particular want to be told, like, you know, how, how do you do this? It's like, don't worry about it. Just do it. Like, write your first hundred crappy Rails apps or Ruby apps or whatever as quickly as possible. And you're just, the, the learning you'll get from getting through that is going to be better than trying to make each of them you know, good. Awesome. Well, maybe that's a good place to wrap up. Is there anything else you want to talk about or plug or anything before we go? Uh, I would like to plug Upcase because Upcase is awesome. And if you think the stuff I've been saying has been useful and you might want to write better or Ruby uh, Ruby or Rails, uh, you should check it out. And I'm going to generate a coupon code right now. Beautiful. So if you're interested, uh, I have a coupon code for your listeners. Uh, for 50% off your first month, if you want to check out Upcase, uh, upcase.com is the place. Um, and the coupon code is full-stack. We should link to that in the show notes because we want to go to upcase.com slash coupon slash full-stack and you'll get that discount automatically. But you have to redeem it by October 20th, 2015. 
Fantastic, man. Well, thanks again uh, for coming on the show. My pleasure. It's been it's been great. Awesome. If you want to check out show notes for this episode, they will be available at fullstackradio.com slash probably 27. Yeah, fullstackradio.com slash 27. If you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that would be fantastic. That helps us reach more people and get discovered and that's always helpful and uh, thanks again to Laracasts for sponsoring the show as always if you're a php developer who wants to learn more about laravel or uh, any other things in the you know php ecosystem there's tons and tons and tons of good stuff on there so uh, check it out thanks everyone see you next time